This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make sure that we are in fellowship with God. Sin is not an issue for the believer in terms of eternal salvation, but it is an issue for fellowship. You see, Jesus Christ came to this earth at the first advent, was born through virgin conception and virgin birth, in order to go to the cross to die. On the cross, between 12 noon and 3 p.m., when God covered the earth with darkness, God, in His justice, poured out upon Jesus Christ the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future. Judicially, Jesus Christ bore the penalty for our sins on the cross so that man would not have to pay that sin. But just because Christ died for sins doesn't mean all are saved. Because the issue now is, are you willing to trust in Christ for salvation? The issue is, are you going to accept God's free gift of salvation or not? When a person believes and puts their faith alone in Christ alone, when they accept the fact that Jesus Christ's death is sufficient and there is nothing that we add to it through our own works, through religious observance, through morality or any other human factor, at that point we're saved. But after salvation we still sin. You still have a sin nature that's just as evil, just as powerful, just as rebellious as it was before salvation. And so, whenever we sin, we break fellowship with God. Scripture says it grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit. The only way to recover fellowship, to be restored to uh, fellowship with God and to advance in our spiritual life is to confess our sins. To That which means to simply admit or acknowledge our sins in privacy to God the Father. And at the instant we admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, we are forgiven. We are cleansed from all unrighteousness, according to 1 John 1, 9, so that we, are, we recover that fellowship with God and we can advance and continue in our spiritual growth. Since the spiritual life in the church age is dependent upon our relationship with God the Holy Spirit, it is important for us to be in right relationship to God the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that He would teach us all things through the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit came. So since we, the highest form of worship is to learn and apply the Word of God, it is important that we do so under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So therefore, we always take a few moments of silent prayer to, before we begin to make sure, to give everyone the opportunity to admit and acknowledge their sins in privacy to God the Father in silent prayer. And then we are prepared to study His Word. So let's uh, open in a word of prayer, and I will pray in just a minute. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity to gather together to study your word this morning. We thank you that we live in a nation where we have this freedom. We thank you for the president that we have. We thank you for the leaders we have who continue to guide and direct this nation. We pray for them. We pray that you would give them wisdom as they have so many decisions to make, especially in this time when we face this war on terrorism and a continuous threat against our national security. Father, as a nation, we have historically been a nation that has sent out missionaries, 
has continued to proclaim the gospel both at home and abroad. And Father, we pray that you would continue to preserve and protect this nation so that we may continue in this function. Furthermore, we continue to support and defend the nation Israel. And as you have promised in the Old Testament, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Father, we pray that you would continue to bless and protect this nation as we continue to be an, a nation that supports Israel and a nation that sends out missionaries. Father, we pray for us as a body of believers that we might continue to be steadfast in your word, that we might continue to grow and advance, that we might not succumb to the distractions of day-to-day life that get our attention and focus on to issues that are uh, not relevant to life, that are just insignificant, that distract us from taking in the Word and applying it consistently in our lives. May we be reminded of your constant faithfulness toward us and the fact that you have given us everything we need, not only for salvation, but also for the spiritual life. That in your omniscience you foresaw every problem, every difficulty, every heartache that we would ever face. And that in your word you have given us the information we need to face and handle and surmount any obstacle, any difficulty, or any challenge. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that you would use it to challenge us that we might continue our spiritual advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Third John. We are now in the third epistle of John, the third epistle of John, and last week we began our study of the first verse, Third John, verse 1. This is the third book from the end of the New Testament, Revelation, back up one short little book, Jude, and then Third John, which is actually the shortest epistle in the New Testament in terms of, of the original Greek text. Third John 1 reads, To the beloved Gaius, whom I love by means of the truth. Beloved, I pray that you might prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk by means of the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk by means of the truth. In this opening to this epistle, John refers to himself as the elder. In verse 1, in last time, we saw that the term the elder is one of several terms used in the New Testament to describe the individual normally referred to as the pastor or the minister. This word elder is from the Greek word presbyteros. Presbyteros, P-R-E-S-B, and in many different uh, transliteration schemes, the Upsilon is transliterated with a Y, T-E-R-O-S. This is where we get our word Presbyterian. And the word Presbyterian has to do with a certain type of church government that emphasizes usually a leadership board that is that are called elders. And it is through a plurality of elders that that local congregation is led. The term presbyteros, though, was one of three terms used to describe the leader in the congregation. And in this term, which actually means in its literal meaning, an older man, it's a masculine singular ending, it refers to an older man, someone who has some years under his belt, but it comes to mean figuratively someone who is uh, mature, someone who is a leader, someone who is put in charge of an organization. So presbyteros emphasizes the maturity factor in the leader of the congregation. There are, as I said, three key or four key words that are used for the Pastor, the word that we commonly use, pastor, is the Greek word uh, poimenos, P-O-I-M-E-N-O-S. And this is the word that literally means a shepherd. 
So God the Holy Spirit, under the uh, operation of inspiration, uses the writers of scriptures to refer to the leader of the congregation through a literal term that then has a figurative meaning brought over as a pastor, the leader of a congregation. And the idea of pastor emphasizes the concept of leadership. Elder or presbyteros emphasizes the quality of maturity. Poimenos emphasizes leadership. But how does a pastor leader lead a congregation? If we look around and go to various churches, what you'll find is all kinds of ideas. It's just a smorgasbord of ideas of what people think a pastor should do. You could uh, go to many different churches and say, what do you think a pastor should do? Well, I think a pastor should visit people. And I think a pastor should be kindly and gentle, and people have this idea that it's, you know, some gentle old man who's rather impotent in life, and he has nice little things to say, and that's the most nauseating, bilious piece of nonsense that ever came along. It has nothing to do with the Bible. See, the Bible emphasizes the pastor as a person who communicates truth, and this is one of the major themes in Third John is this emphasis on truth. And the pastor is a communicator, and that is why the term poimenos is linked in Ephesians 4.11 in a Greek construction known as hendiades with a second noun, didaskalos. Didaskalos, D-I-D-A-S-K-A-L-O-S. Didaskalos means uh, a teacher or an instructor. And by linking these two together, the Holy Spirit is indicating that the way in which the pastor leads a congregation and guides a congregation is through teaching them the Word, not preaching the Word. Preaching is okay. Preaching is geared towards exhortation, challenging people. But you have to give people information. They have to be taught. The focus of the Christian life in the Scripture is to learn how to think as God thinks. God has revealed His thinking to us in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 calls the Bible the mind or the thinking of Jesus Christ. You're not left on your own to figure out what God is like or what God likes or what God's values are or what Jesus is like because God has revealed himself objectively to us in his word. The word of God, the Bible, is the unique Revelation of God given over a period of 2,000 years by over 66 different authors who are over 66 different books, over 40 different authors who come from many different walks of life. Some were like Moses. Moses was trained in the household of Pharaoh. He brought up as an adopted son of the Pharaoh of Egypt, and he was trained in all of the skills of that day to be the ruler of Egypt. He was taught science as it was known at that day. He was taught engineering, mathematics. He was taught uh, military skills. He had the highest education available to anyone at that time, and he rejected all of that as irrelevant for the cause of Jesus Christ. He, he came to be a believer in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and believing his promise that he would send a Messiah. The Hebrew term Messiah means Christ, or the Anointed One, and he, as in the Old Testament, you were saved by believing in the promise that God would send a Savior. It was anticipatory, and so he trusted in Christ alone for his salvation. He turned his back on all the riches of Egypt and counted them as reproach, and God used him in a mighty way to deliver the Jews from slavery in Egypt. So Moses was trained at the highest level of education and leadership of his time. You had men like Amos, who was a herdsman and a fig picker, the other end of the spectrum. Then you had men like David and Solomon, who were the greatest royalty of Israel in the Old Testament. You have uh, others who, David was originally a shepherd uh, before he be, was anointed king of Israel. 
Then you have others like Daniel, who was just a, a, a captive, taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, brought back to uh, Babylon and retrained to serve as a civil servant in the bureaucracy of ancient Babylon. In the New Testament, you have men like Peter and John who were commercial fishermen. Paul, who was a trained rabbi. You have Matthew, who was a tax collector for the Roman Empire. So the writers of Scripture came from many different walks of life, and yet they never contradict one another. Everything that they record in the Scripture is complementary and expansive and relates to everything else that is taught in Scripture. Scripture has a unified theme, which is the glory of God. The Old Testament anticipates God's provision of a Savior who would perform all the work for mankind in relationship to salvation. The New Testament records the work of that salvation in the gospel and explains what that means and the dynamics of the new spiritual life in the epistles from Romans through Jude. So the Bible has, God has given us his thinking in the Word of God, and it is the responsibility of the shepherd teacher or the pastor teacher to teach, to instruct those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior in all of the dynamics of the salvation that has been freely provided for mankind, to instruct us in terms of all of the assets that God supplied us, all of the spiritual assets that were given us at the instant of salvation. Scripture says that we were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies at the instant of salvation. There is nothing that we lack at salvation in terms of being able to live the spiritual life, face any problem, difficulty in life. So it is the responsibility of the pastor-teacher to lead the congregation, and he does that primarily through teaching the Word. This is how a pastor expresses his love for the congregation, not by showing up at your house and taking up some of your valuable time, not by dropping in on you at the hospital, and not by going around and just being an all-round good fellow. The pastor shows his love for the congregation by spending his time studying the Word, teaching the Word, so that he can provide for the spiritual nourishment and welfare of a congregation. So the the second and third words related to a pastor that we studied last time emphasize his role as the one who feeds the sheep. This was the commission that God gave to the apostles after the resurrection, when he was talking to Peter, he said, If you love me, you feed my sheep. The way the pastor demonstrates his love for God is by studying and teaching and dedicating his life to a life of studying and teaching. Then the third word that is used, or the fourth word, excuse me, the fourth word used for the pastor is the Greek word episkopos. Episkopos. E-P-I-S-K-O-P. OS. This is a word that uh, was translated bishop, and it was used to, like presbyteros, to identify a particular kind of church government, that hierarchical form uh, known as the Episcopalian form of government from the word episkopos. And this is just another word, and this word emphasizes the authority of the pastor. All Four words are used to describe the same individual, but each one looks at that individual from a slightly different perspective. Presbyteros emphasizes his spiritual maturity. Poimenos emphasizes his leadership. Didaskalos indicates the means by which that leadership is, uh, is conducted through teaching and explaining the Word of God and showing how that uh, relates to the life of every single believer, and then Episcopos emphasizes the authority of the pastor. Now, last time we went through a much more detailed study of those words and the role of the pastor-teacher in the local congregation, and this morning we need to finish up our study of the pastor by looking at the uh, concept of preparation for the ministry. What is needed to prepare a man for the pastoral ministry. This is something that is often overlooked today. We live in a crazy world today. We live in a world where we're so used to instant gratification and everything that we forget that some things just take a long time. 
you can't make a uh, certain things happen overnight. It takes years for quality, integrity, and character to develop in an individual. It takes years for real maturation to take place. It takes years for maturity in the spiritual life to take place. You just can't run into church, show up a half a dozen Sundays, and think that you understand the Bible and you know how the spiritual life works. Certain things take just as long today as they did in the first century and just as long as they did 2,000 years before Christ. The same thing is true in terms of preparation for the ministry, and we have lost that principle that I pointed out in the first hour is that in a growing, advancing civilization, people are always pursuing excellence and quality, and they constantly reevaluate whatever they are doing in terms of excellence and quality. But once a civilization begins to decline, they become uh, They accept the status quo. They begin to do things the way they always did things. They're no longer on the cutting edge. They're no longer innovating. They're just glad to get by on what's what's been accomplished in the past. This is, unfortunately, what is happening in too many churches today across the country. We think that because of certain technology that's available today for Bible study that we don't need to do the same old-fashioned hard work that was required in years past in terms of going to seminary, studying the original languages of Hebrew for the, and Aramaic for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament, spending years studying theology. When I went through seminary, I chose a seminary where there would be two or three main emphases. The first was learning the languages so that I could have three or four years of detailed study in Hebrew and Greek. Second, there would be a an in-depth study of systematic theology. Most seminaries give their seminary students one or at most two semesters of theology. What most pastors get is a collection of courses in administration of the church, how to counsel people in and with certain problems, how to run a youth group, and they get about three semesters of study on the Bible. The way it ought to be is you get rid of all those other courses and you spend three or four years doing nothing but studying the Bible. You see, Jesus' command was to feed the sheep. It wasn't to administer the church, build a youth group, have a wonderful ladies' auxiliary, and all of the other social club distractions that most churches get involved in. That has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. So a pastor has to be prepared. First emphasis I had was original languages. Second was on systematic theology. And the third was on really understanding the Bible. And at that time, Dallas Seminary had a curriculum where during a four-year During the four-year THM program, or Masters of Theology, you studied every single book in the Bible. Now, you didn't study all of them at equal depth, but you spent some time at least in every single book in the Bible. And this is what prepares a pastor to pastor. So, to begin with, we have to look at this doctrine of preparation for the ministry, because what happens in a declining civilization is people tend to settle for this, not only for the status quo, but they tend to emphasize minimum requirements and minimum expectations. What's the least amount I have to do in order to accomplish the job? You talk to any employer in this country today, and that's one of the greatest problems they face with their employees, is most people want to get everything for nothing, and when they go to work for a corporation, they don't want to dedicate their life to the the task of that job. They want to find out what's the least amount of work I have to do to get by, to get the benefits, to get the perks, to get the uh, salary or wage, and that's all they're going to put out. That is a sign of a deteriorating and declining civilization. A healthy, vibrant civilization is motivated and excited, and they want to do all they can do, and they want to constantly improve themselves, and their focus is on quality and advance. And that should be the attitude of the local church towards their pastor, is helping him advance and study and mature as best he can 
and that should be the attitude of the pastor teacher is to constantly be pushing himself to learn more, to study more, to increase his understanding of the Word. You don't get it all in seminary. That may surprise some folks, and a lot of seminary students think that, that what they get in seminary they can just coast on. But the word seminary comes from the word seminal, seed. What you get in seminary are the basic structures, frameworks, and basic tools or seeds for a lifelong ministry. It's up to the individual to take that which he is given in seminary and to build on that. Now, sometimes I've had people say to me, well, you know, you are such an in-depth teacher, you really ought to be teaching in seminary. Well, that shows that they don't understand a thing about seminary. See, in a four-year curriculum, you can't cover the Gospel of John in, what did we have, 120 hours? Now, we understood the Gospel of John. You know, when I went through seminary, you covered it in 10 hours. Because that's all the time you have. You have so many different things you're teaching. You're just giving the basic structures. It's up to the pastor after he leaves to take that information and to build upon that and develop it and then to teach the congregation and not just to just sort of uh, skip over the high points like most pastors do in their superficial homilies geared towards morality rather than spirituality. So what's involved in preparing for the ministry? First of all, a, a man has to have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. The man has to have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher, and the possession of the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher and the vocation of pastor-teacher is the highest calling a man can receive. There is no higher calling than the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher and the vocation of pastor-teacher. Because it is the pastor-teacher who provides the spiritual nourishment for the congregation. It is the pastor-teacher who informs and explains to the congregation everything that God provided for you at salvation. Everything that Jesus Christ did on the cross for our salvation. So that we can come to a tremendous appreciation of the fact that we were bought with a price. We were bought with the price of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We were redeemed by Him on the cross. We come to understand the doctrine of propitiation, that one of the greatest blocks to salvation is the fact that God is a perfect God. He possesses perfect righteousness and perfect justice, and His justice must be satisfied. He can't just save people willy-nilly, say, Oh, okay, you're a sinner, but I'm going to overlook that and just let you into heaven. His justice has to be satisfied. The standard has to be met. And so God sent His Son to die on the cross so that we could receive the righteousness of Christ. We're told that He who knew no sin became sin for us, that or in order that the righteousness of God might be found in us. You see, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone... God the Father imputes to the believer the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that it's not your righteousness that is the basis of salvation. It is the possession of Christ's righteousness for salvation. It's a free gift. It is not based on who and what we are, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. A pastor is to explain all of these doctrines plus everything that God has supplied for us for living the spiritual life and what the dynamics for that spiritual life are. So that, as the Scripture says, we can live a life where there, no matter what the circumstances may be, no matter how uh, difficult our circumstances may be, whether we are in a status of poverty or wealth, whether we are in a situation where we have health problems or whether we are in a position where we have great health, whether we are in a position of physical suffering, uh, of, of persecution, or whether we're in a position of prosperity, whatever our circumstances may be, we can have perfect stability, tranquility, and contentment because we know that we, are, we have a right relationship with God and that every other issue in life, no matter what it is, your family life, your children, how you relate to your parents, your education, your career, how you relate to your government, your understanding of economics, your understanding of everything in life comes from 
first and foremost your relationship with God. It is the pastor who is the man who teaches us how to have this relationship with God. Nothing, therefore, is more important than that function and that operation. So even though there are in life many different callings, and they are all significant and important, but in different senses. And in the spiritual life, there are different spiritual gifts, and they are all important, and none is uh, insignificant. And Paul uses the analogy of a body. And he says that, that we can't do without the eye or the hand or the foot, but in one sense, it is the pastor teacher who is like the head. He is the leader, he is the guide, and he is the one who explains the word. He is the one who feeds the sheep, nourishes the sheep, guides the sheep, directs and leads the sheep. It is the pastor teacher is the one through whom we receive our spiritual nourishment and without whom without whom we are left without growth. We cannot grow spiritually. God has given the gift of spiritual uh, 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 the spiritual gift of pastor teacher because the individual believer cannot get out of the Bible everything he needs for spiritual growth. You can read the Bible, you can be reminded of many promises, you can learn many basic concepts, but but without someone who has the gift of pastor-teacher, you cannot grow out of spiritual infancy. It is the pastor's teacher who protects the congregation from the incursions of false doctrine and false thinking. It is the pastor-teacher who challenges us to refrain from self-destructive sin patterns that will bring divine discipline and self-induced misery. It is the pastor-teacher who brings us the Word of God that refreshes our soul, renovates our thinking, reminds us of the truth, restores our vision, and reinforces our hope. This is why the gift and the calling of pastor-teacher is the highest calling that there is in life. Therefore, point two, having the gift of pastor-teacher requires the greatest preparation of any function in life. Having the gift, possessing the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher requires the greatest preparation of any function in life. In other professions, society rightly expects and requires usually two things before putting someone in a position of serious responsibility and authority. First of all, they require a specific course of training. Just think about a plumber. You don't want just anybody coming in and putting all the plumbing into your house. You want somebody who knows what they're doing, understands all of the dynamics of, uh, of plumbing, and someone who has gone through a course. Not only has he gone through a course of training, but he has had to spend a time of apprenticeship or internship under an established professional. These factors apply to many different professions in life. Teachers, carpenters, medical professionals, accountants, lawyers, business professionals, and many others are required to, to go through a, a, a specified course of training and a certain type of internship or apprenticeship before they're ever allowed to function in that position. And yet, in many churches, we think because somebody just has, is, has a charismatic personality or because they speak well, that they're therefore qualified to get in the pulpit. Or just because they're able to memorize a certain amount of theology, that that, in conjunction with the ability to speak well, qualifies them to be a pastor. It does not. The fact that we have men in pulpits in this country who have never been to seminary, have never gone through the rigorous academic discipline in order to learn how to think biblically and to think critically is a sign of a regressive civilization. We no longer want quality in a pulpit. We just want somebody who can stimulate our emotions, someone who will do. We don't want to emphasize the fact that we want men in the pulpit who meet a certain standard. That's how it was in the early years of this republic. In the early years of this nation, in the 18th century and in the 17th century, if you were out on the frontier, which usually gets a, a certain uh, a caricatured look 
from the uh, movies in Hollywood, and you have the frontier preacher, somebody who was just preaching hellfire and brimstone and really didn't know a whole lot, and he was nothing more than than uh, someone who stirred up the emotions. And while there were some like this, the men who were the who were the actual itinerant uh, preachers who traveled throughout this country had their Greek New Testament and their Hebrew Old Testament in their saddlebags. These were men who were trained at some of the better seminaries in the early days of this country at places like Princeton and Yale and Harvard before they went liberal, men who before they ever entered seminary had already mastered Greek and Latin and Hebrew in in their uh, grade school and high school educations because that was the standard that we had. We used to have a high standard of education in this country that we expected of everyone. The figures for the literacy rate in the colony of Massachusetts in 1680 uh, shows that the lowest literacy rate of any town in Massachusetts was 96%. 96% because people prioritized education. It wasn't important to be educated so you could make a living. Making a living is a poor motivator. And that's why we have a poor education system today is we think that it's vocational. It's not vocational. It is so you can understand the written revelation of God. When the motivation for education in the colony of Massachusetts was so that children could understand what the eternal God, creator of the universe, communicated to us, that gives you a reason to be able to read. But when you reason to read just so you can make a few more dollars, well, the motivation isn't quite as eternal and quite as significant. And so you had a society that understood the importance of education wasn't just so that you could make a living, but so that you could understand the revelation of God and have a relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth. Well, as we have deteriorated in our culture and we keep lowering our standards and we just want minimal expectations and, min- and, and minimal requirements, the same thing has happened uh, to pastors. And so many pastor teachers that exist today uh, do not have the kind of education uh, training that they should have. In fact, in many churches, in many churches, the education, the training, the internship, and the continuing education of a pastor is either irrelevant, it's ignored, and in some cases it's treated as wrong. A church that doesn't see to the ongoing education of a pastor is extremely short-sighted. You expect your doctor, your physician, your medical professional each year to go back and go through a, a number of courses that keep him up to date on the latest developments. You expect your accountant to be up to date on the latest tax laws. You expect your lawyer to be up to date on all of the latest uh, ways in which he can get you off the hook in case you get brought into court. But you don't, uh, and by you I don't mean this congregation specifically, but many congregations uh, never provide for the opportunity for their pastors to continue their education, uh, go to uh, continuing alumni training classes, go to computer skills training, or whatever it might be. They, they don't do that. And what's sad is there are many pastors who think that they got all they needed when they were in seminary, or, or maybe they're so arrogant they didn't go to seminary, and they think they don't need to be involved in anything that gives them a continuing education. And, of course, that's a sign of arrogance, which immediately disqualifies that individual from being a pastor-teacher. It's sad, but we require more of a plumber than we do of a pastor in terms of credentials. We expect more of a physician than we do of a pastor in terms of keeping up with current developments. And we expect more of an accountant or a lawyer than we do of our pastor in terms of education. One of the problems we see is that in the zeal to maintain the absolute value of an autonomous or independent congregation, the churches frequently accept a pastor-teacher on minimal qualifications just so they can have a pastor just so they can have someone local. They compromise the standard and the quality just so they can have somebody who fills the pulpit and 
If he is ordained and can speak well, well, so much the better. In terms of preparation, we have two broad areas. This is point number three. Preparation for the pastor-teacher ministry involves two broad areas, the general and the specific. Generally, you have general personal preparation. This area focuses on the development of the individual in terms of his personal disciplines and habits which are necessary for a lifetime of study. He needs to be a self-starter and a self-motivator. He needs to be someone who does not always require somebody looking over his shoulder in order to get the job done. To function as a pastor, he needs to have a well-developed sense of responsibility. He has to have a strong sense of self-discipline so that he can function in the process of studying and teaching, so that he can function in the process of studying and teaching. The gift of pastor-teacher demands that this person be a lifetime student of the Word of God. Many different ways that you can enhance your development of self-discipline through uh, involvement in athletics when you're young, through going into the military, spending some time in military service, or putting yourself in a system of strict academic study. A pastor-teacher should go through academic, a, a, a group academics, let's say a formal ac- academics, and go to a seminary because that's going to teach them how to think. If you're sitting out in a correspondence course and you're just doing it on your own, you miss the, the, the ongoing exchange of ideas with other students. And as a result of that, you're not exposed to opinions that aren't your own. And if somebody else says something you don't agree with and they have an argument for their position that you can't answer, you need to learn either how to answer it or change your views. You need to learn how to think so that you're not dependent on someone else to do your thinking for you. Second, in terms of spiritual preparation, in terms of spiritual preparation, the pastor-teacher must prepare for the ministry through his own personal advance. He needs to be an individual who disciplines himself to study the Word uh, under a pastor-teacher who can teach him. He needs to be someone who faithfully attends Bible class, and it gets involved at some level of ministry at a local local church. You can't know if you have the gift of pastor-teacher if you're not teaching anyone. If you think you have the gift of pastor-teacher, you ought to get involved teaching a Sunday school class or doing something just to see if you actually can teach and if people respond to your teaching. So he needs to be prepared spiritually. He needs to be reading his Bible consistently. He needs to be memorizing Scripture. He needs to be preparing himself so that when he goes to seminary, he can get the most out of it. I was very fortunate in the time after I graduated from from a college, I got a job teaching in a in a junior senior high in a small town on the edge of Houston. But it wasn't a regular teaching job because that can take up a lot of time. Instead, they were they were experimenting with new ways of taking care of disciplinary problems in the school back then. And uh, instead of expelling students and suspending them, uh, which would actually, you know, there's always a financial motive. I don't know how things work up here in Connecticut, but in Texas, schools get a certain amount of money depending on the attendance each day. So if they're sending these kids home and expelling them for three days, that kid's not there, and that means they're not getting those dollars. So they decided that they would figure out a way to keep them on campus. And so they created what was like a jail on campus, and I was a jailer. And these kids would get suspended for two or three days and sent to me. And I had a classroom that was about the size of this auditorium. And so if I only had five or six kids in there, I could stick one kid in each corner facing the corner. Each kid had a was given a boatload of assignments from each teacher to keep them busy during their, it was called the Special Assignment Class, the acronym SAC. So these kids got sacked. So they would, when they got sacked, their teachers would give them all kinds of work, like copy the dictionary, pages 20 to page 70, work on your penmanship. And they would be sent to, the, sent to me, and I ran it like a drill sergeant. And I got, I, I'm amazed at the stuff I got away with back in those days. 
but you could still have some level of discipline. But if I just had five or six kids in there, and they're each facing the opposite corner, and I developed radar so that I could tell if a kid moved, I sat there for six hours a day, and I read through Chafer's systematic theology from cover to cover. I had a friend of mine who had just started Dallas Seminary, and he gave me a list of every book he had to read during his first year in seminary, and I read every one of those books. I read a number of other things. I read my Bible through every two months from cover to cover. And so for two years, I prepared myself to go to seminary. So when I got to seminary, it wasn't a piece of cake, but I had a foundation upon which to build, so I got even more out of it. So prior to seminary, the man ought to prepare himself through the study of the Word, read as much as he can, study as much as he can, become acquainted with the issues that he is going to be addressing while he is in school. Then we come to academic preparation. That academic preparation needs to involve, as I stated earlier, three things. The study of the original languages, the study of the Bible itself, and the study of systematic theology. But every seminary just about has a few Mickey Mouse courses. And it always amazes me. I'll hear guys say, well, you know, I really didn't want to go to seminary because I heard there were Mickey Mouse courses there. Well, did you go to university? you have an undergraduate degree? Yeah. Did you take any Mickey Mouse courses? Yeah. Okay, so what's the difference? There are nonsense courses attached to almost every curriculum for any degree in this country. There is something that some student doesn't really think is relevant or significant to what he wants to eventually do or get out of that program. And see, if you can't learn to handle that, you, you haven't developed the kind of humility and maturity necessary to function in the pulpit. That's all part of the process of growth. Whatever it is, do you have a job? Are you expected to do things in that job that you think are irrelevant, that you think are nonsense, that you don't agree with? Sure you do. But by doing them, you develop humility, you develop discipline, and that produces character. And see, what happens is you get people with arrogance think they can uh, shortcut the process and somehow go from the pew to the pulpit without going through the difficult stages. And there's always something that is missing in those, uh, those who take the shortcut and don't go through seminary. When you go through school, you need to study Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, systematic theology. You need to study uh, the church history and all of the other disciplines that go with hermeneutics and Bible study. This is what enables a pastor-teacher to be qualified to stand in the pulpit and to teach and explain the Word of God. So preparation, point number four. Preparation then relates to the principle that God uses prepared men. Preparation relates to the principle that God uses prepared men. It's not just a matter of sitting under a pastor-teacher and learning to regurgitate what he says. You have to learn how to think on your own because, first of all, no pastor-teacher in this country is infallible. No pastor-teacher in history is infallible. Every one of us makes mistakes, and every one of us learns from the mistakes of our predecessors and builds on that. That's the whole history of the church age. One generation builds on the learning and the advancing advances and developments of the previous generation. I can see that already. I see a few men out there in ministry who came up in the early years under my ministry. There's one man down in Houston. I remember teaching Greek first-year Greek to him in my living room 15, 16 years ago. He went on to get his master's in theology from Dallas Seminary and then his doctorate in education. He's now the vice president academic dean of a Bible college. And in some ways, he has gone far beyond me because he has built on what I taught him. There are many others. I spent some time yesterday with a young man who's pastoring down in Tennessee and uh, I didn't realize who this, I didn't know what had happened to him. I first met him about 12 years ago. He was wet behind the ears, 19-year-old kid, and he came to Houston and spent some time with me and asked me, what should I do to prepare to be a pastor? And I never heard from him again. And then when I came here and we had our website out there and tapes were made available, one day I got an email from him about four years ago. 
and he had discovered our website and had been ordering tapes, and he just said, well, I wanted to let you know what had, what had happened. I've been following your advice and taking courses through Tyndale Seminary, and, and I've been advancing. At that time, he was not a pastor. And I didn't hear from him again. He, he, he ordered with his first name, and I'd always known him by his middle name, so I had no idea this guy was ordering tapes. And then last summer, I discovered, you know, the, who he was, and I emailed him, and he had just taken over a church in, uh, in Tennessee, and he is continuing to study, continuing to go to a continuing education type of courses, and, uh, and continuing to read and to study. And as I watch him, and he's told me some of the books that he's read, I'm just amazed. He's reading excellent material. And he is going to build on the stuff that I have taught him, just as I have built on the pastors that, that I came up under. That is the process. It is the pursuit of excellence and the pursuit of quality. And there are going to be men that come up under him and under the next guy after that, and they will go far beyond what, what I've taught or what my pastor taught me because they're building on what we have, we have, we have studied and what we have taught. And that's the process. Preparation relates to the principle that God uses prepared men, and it is prepared men who are going to fill the vacuum in our world today because there are very few pastors being are coming out of seminaries today who are trained to teach the Word. And more and more I'm hearing of uh, from groups, from churches, who say, well, would you come and teach because we want somebody to teach the Word. I hear from pastors who go out and candidate at churches, pastors who like to teach the Bible. And they'll have older people in the congregation come up to them and make statements like, well, you know, I haven't heard anybody teach the Bible like that. In 20 years, our old pastor used to teach like that, but we got a new pastor about 10 or 15 years ago, and he was more concerned with church growth. He was more concerned with programs, and so we got involved with all these things. Of course, the church grew, and lots of things happened, but nobody knows the Bible anymore. It was so refreshing to hear somebody come and teach the Bible. And so men that I know... And we laugh, laugh about it amongst ourselves that we don't feel like we have near the stature or the verbal skills of some of our teachers and pastors, and yet we're being, we're given the opportunity to go travel around this country and overseas to teach the Word because nobody's doing it anymore. And the people out there who want the Word are desperate to find somebody who is teaching the Bible. God uses prepared men. Now, the fifth point is identification of the spiritual gift must, must avoid confusing it with certain personality traits, with the, having a popular personality, and with the natural abilities of speaking and teaching. You've got to learn to avoid confusing it with the natural gift of speaking and teaching. There are people who aren't believers, who aren't Christians, who have tremendous speaking talents. They have tremendous teaching talents, but those are natural talents. It's not the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. And you have to learn to distinguish between the fact that that you might have the gift of pastor-teacher and the fact that you just have a natural ability to teach or to speak. And there are many pastors out there, who, people who are leading churches, who don't have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. But they have a dynamic personality, and they have the ability to teach, natural ability to teach. And so they amass great followings. But the doctrine that they teach is, is horrible because they don't have the gift of pastor-teacher, which enables you to get into the Word of God and to dig out from the Word of God the doctrinal principles necessary for spiritual growth and spiritual life. And then finally, finally, in terms of point number, uh, I think I'm about point number seven, qualification in terms of ordination. Some churches, they'll ordain you if you just think you have the gift of pastor-teacher and leave it up to God to handle the situation. But that's not how it used to be in this country. I was particularly challenged in this in my first church pastor who had retired there 10 years earlier was still, had moved back to the area and was back in the church. 
And he had been ordained as a Southern Presbyterian minister in 1933, graduated from Southern Presbyterian Seminary or Austin Presbyterian Seminary in Austin, Texas. And he was telling me about his ordination. He had to pass a written exam in Greek, a written exam in Hebrew, and plus oral exams on, on theology and the Bible. And I thought, my, how we've fallen. My, we've lost the standard. We no longer insist on quality. I'm amazed that people have come out of our background where we, are, many of us, have sat under the ministry and teaching of Pastor Theme down in Houston who set a gold standard for education and quality. And yet we have people who come out of that ministry who go listen to somebody who never went to seminary and doesn't know a word of Greek or Hebrew except when he repeats from something he picked up from somebody else. Those people who will settle. Those people don't want a quality leader. They just want somebody who makes them feel comfortable. They don't want a real pastor who has truly developed his gifts, and they have just settled for second-class, third-class operation. See, the issue isn't, does he have the gift of pastor-teacher? The issue is, does, has he trained himself and gone through the rigorous qualifications necessary to use his gift of pastor-teacher. So ordination exams should include three areas. They should include, first of all, written exams that evaluate a man's ability to exegete from the original languages. He should have it, uh, be given a passage in Hebrew in the Old Testament, he, Greek in the New Testament, and be given the opportunity to write a three- to five-page paper to demonstrate that he has the skills to exegete the passage. Then he should be given a written exam in relationship to doctrine to make sure he at least understands doctrine and not just regurgitation questions, but thought questions to see if he has critical thinking skills. Then he should be given an oral exam, an oral exam. The oral exam isn't to determine what he understands or what he believes, but to see if he can think on his feet, to give him the opportunity to verbally express himself before an audience so that you can see if he really does have the gift of pastor-teacher. It's related to verbal, uh, verbal teaching. And third, as part of the process, he should be required to submit one or two tapes where he's been teaching a group so that those who are evaluating him for ordination can see whether or not he actually has the ability to teach the Word. These should be the standards to keep the standard high for ordination. This is the concept of pastor-teacher. So John refers to himself now as the elder, even though he was an apostle. By this time, it's late in the first century. It's about 90 to 93 A.D. He writes this epistle, and by this time, all the other apostles are dead. He is no longer functioning as an apostle. He is functioning as a pastor, so he uses a title that references his pastoral ministry and his pastoral authority. He addresses it to his friend, the beloved Gaius, whom I love by means of the truth. Now, this second phrase in the first verse introduces the concept of love that is linked to truth. Love can only function in relationship to integrity, and integrity can only come from a relationship with God. Now, the subject of love is a extensive subject, and it leads into the next three verses, so we will wait until next time before we get into the issue of friendship love, as it is explained in this passage, personal love for God as the foundation for all love, because it is only as a result of our personal love for God that we begin to develop integrity in our soul, and it is only on the basis of integrity that you can have genuine love for people with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for your grace, that in your grace you have provided everything for us. You have provided everything for our salvation. You have provided everything for our spiritual life. And you have provided your word that gives us the information we need to live that spiritual life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
This means that every single human being falls short of God's standard of absolute perfection. However, God in his love and in his grace has provided a perfect solution to that problem. He has taken it upon himself to solve the sin problem. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to go to the cross, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. He paid the penalty, so we would not have to pay that penalty. Therefore, the issue is not your sin. The issue is not your failure. The issue is not what you have done or what you haven't done. The issue isn't morality, church attendance, religious observance. The issue is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? Scripture makes it clear. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what is the solution? How are we saved? Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Right now, right where you sit is your opportunity to settle your eternal destiny. All you need to do is make that decision to trust in Christ alone for salvation. The instant you do so, God knows, God in his omniscience knows exactly what you are trusting for salvation. And at that instant, he credits to your account the perfect righteousness of Christ, declares you justified, and imputes to you eternal life. You can never lose that eternal life. You did nothing to earn it or deserve it. You do nothing to keep it. It is your gift for all eternity. And therefore, you will never have to worry about your eternal destiny. You will have that secured. You will spend eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to be challenged by it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.